Welcome to the official ABA Law Student Podcast, where we talk about issues that affect law students and recent grads. From finals and graduation to the bar exam and finding a job, this show is your trusted resource for the next big step. You're listening to the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to another edition of the ABA Law Student Podcast on Legal Talk Network. This is Fabiani Duarte. And I'm Madison Burke. And we're the host for today's show, which is being presented by the American Bar Association's Law Student Division. In this monthly podcast, we interview guests and cover topics of interest for law students and recent grads, from finals to graduation and the bar exam to finding a job. We hope this show is a trusted resource for you, our listeners. Today's topic is actually an interview with one of our very own board members, the representative to the ABA Board of Governors, the incomparable Chris Jennison. Well, thank you. Welcome, Chris. We're excited you're here. Chris is from the great state of New York, and we have so much uh, to talk about. But before we get started, why don't you tell us a little about yourself? Absolutely. Well, let me first correct you, Fabiani. My home state and the state that I'm most proud of is actually Maryland. Oh. I'm a proud uh, Syracuse uh, University College of Law student and went to Syracuse as well for undergrad. Uh, so I'm well-versed in uh, upstate New York, but Maryland is uh, where I call home. Is the stomping ground. All right. Well, it's an important important correction. All right. But thanks so much. All right. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm conflicted too. My sweet home is Alabama, but I go to law school <laughs> in, in Georgia. Fair enough. Uh, but uh, that's all right. It's all right. Well, we'll see. Unless there's a war or something something. I won't have to declare my allegiance. Um, they already did that. But anyway, why don't we uh, go ahead and get started with some questions here. What is the ABA Board of Governors? Sure. So the ABA Board of Governors is a 38-member uh, body that uh, is the policymaking body of the American Bar Association between meetings of the House of Delegates at annual meeting and mid-year meeting. So the Board of Governors meets uh, five or so times a year, including at the annual mid-year meetings, but then periodically throughout the year as well. And they meet and deliberate on topics uh, and matters of operations and governance for the entire association throughout the year. That's great. So what is your position specifically, or how do you fit into the big picture? Sure. So we, as a law student division, have had a representative on the Board of Governors for going on about eight or 10 years now. And that role originally was just a observational, uh, non-voting role. And then in uh, about 2009, uh, the then uh, law student member of the board uh, pushed for a voting position on the board, which is huge for us as law students. Uh, Before that time, law students were not seen as a a crucial uh, vote or a, a crucial piece of the board. Uh, And so many of the board members, uh, while they talked to and and involved the law student member, didn't need to uh, go into details and go into depth and build a strong relationship with the law student. But since we have a vote now, they're a crucial piece of the board. And it's part of the horse trading and politics of any association of this size that the law student with this vote is now a key piece and can advocate for law students. So what are you advocating for law students with that vote uh, on? Sure. So the board considers uh, all sorts of matters from uh, co-sponsorship requests from the various SDFs of the ABA, 
to nominations by the president of the association to matters like publications and uh, how the various entities are structured. The two things that I would say are probably the biggest pieces that the Law Student Division is, is advocating for right now is uh, 3052, uh, which is a, uh, a standard uh, within the ABA's uh, standards for law schools that prevents students from getting uh, paid for externships for credit. So that's one thing that we have been looking at a lot. And the other is the uniform bar exam, uh, which is, as you are, are well familiar with, uh, Fabiani, uh, is a exam that is now administered in 17 states and allows law students and recent graduates to uh, transfer their score a lot more uh, easily between various states. So let's, let's take those one at a time. Sure. So uh, 305-2, you talked about externships. How's that different from an internship? And you talked about credit, that's academic credit. Just kind of flesh that out a little bit more. Absolutely. So uh, externships are uh, experiences where a law student is working at a firm or a prosecutor's office or any kind of government association or a, a nonprofit, uh, and they are getting academic credit from their school for that experience and that time they're putting in. An internship is the same thing, but minus the credit as well. What we are looking for is getting this this paid opportunity as well, though, with the externships. So students who are doing paid internships right now would, if this passes, possibly be able to also receive credit through an externship as well as their salary or whatever payment they would receive. That's absolutely correct, Madison. Right now, if a law student is getting credit for an externship at a public service organization, for example, they cannot get any kind of pay from that organization as well, uh, other than uh, very menial compensation to cover some basic costs. But it is very, very menial uh, and very marginal in the amount that they can get. If a student is getting paid a lot, for example, at a summer associate position, whether you're getting twenty-five dollars or $30,000 for the summer, they cannot get credit for that experience, despite it probably being a very academic experience. All right. So uh, status quo right now means that you have to pay tuition to the school to get that credit while you work and get no pay? Absolutely. Okay, and so uh, if they got pay with the passage of, of this initiative, they would still have to pay tuition to the school and still receive pay? Sadly, yes, okay. uh, but, it, but it's still a marginal improvement for law students, and okay. that's what we're going for. Okay. Yeah, so what is the value added to the law students if we're able to get this approved by the ABA? Absolutely. It's a, the ability for a law student to pay their rent or uh, pay their grocery bill for uh, a week or a month uh, based off of what they're getting paid. While many who are opposed to changing this say that it's not much money, uh, and, and in reality it really is not much money, um, it's still a, a, a decent amount for law students to be able to pay some of these necessary costs that just mount uh, during the, the duration of law school. All right. Well, very good. Let's pivot to the other initiative. You're talking about the uniform bar exam. You said there's 17 states. Uh, um, you don't have to name all of them unless you want to. But uh, <laughs> I don't know if I could if I wanted quiz. to. But let's see. What, what are some of the big ones that, that might resonate with some of our listeners? Sure. So uh, Arizona, Colorado, uh, Montana, even though it's not a big state in terms of the number of bar takers, uh, is a very proud uniform bar exam state. Uh, and most recently, we have uh, New York uh, just this past May announcing that they're going to go for, to the uniform bar exam for the July bar exam of 2016. So the ability to take one standardized version of the bar exam uh, in all these states, but how is that different from reciprocity that exists between states? Sure. So reciprocity, as it largely stands currently, uh, only helps those who are out of law school and have taken the bar more than five years ago. Mm-hmm. And so what these barriers between various state bar admittances, the people that it's hurting is 
law students in the, those five years. So if you take the bar exam, for example, in uh, New York, and I, then I get a job in Maryland rather than New York, I have to either stay in New York for those five years until I can be admitted into Maryland on the lawyer bar, or I have to study for, pay for, and wait for the results of retaking the bar in Maryland. So it's a huge hurdle. So the UBA is relevant for recent graduates of, of law school, basically. Correct. Okay. Very good. And so um, what, what do you think are, are the hurdles that, you said 17 states, what about the, the other, what is it, 33 sure. uh, that, that they're facing? Yeah, you know, a lot of states are uh, very hesitant to change the, the, their bar exam around. Um, New York, for example, was very, very hesitant. And the State Bar of New York, uh, which is a great association, uh, was very vehemently against the uniform bar exam in New York. They were concerned that uh, having a bar exam that um, will allow more lawyers to come into their state will diminish the value of the New York bar exam. But to be honest, there has not been a flood of uh, applicants into any of the UBE states. It's been the ability for those who take the UBE in any state going to other states. It's not a, a huge number. It's actually a very small number in reality currently. That might be because of the few number of states that actually have the UBE, but it, there's promise there if more states adopt it. All right. So just to be clear, this doesn't actually affect the costs that are associated with being admitted to each state's bar. So you take the UBE in Washington, my home state, sure. but then I get a job offer in New York. I'm still going to have to apply to be admitted to the New York bar, That's pay correct. the associated fees, but not take the exam again. That's correct. You'll still have a, a fee associated with most states and transfer your, your uniform bar exam score into that state. But the difference is now, instead of having to pay the time costs of having to sit for, study for, and wait for that bar exam, uh, and also pay for, presumptively, a, a whole new bar right. exam prep course, yeah. uh, <laughs> you will just have to pay what is, in New York, I believe it's $250, $275, somewhere in there, to transfer mm. your score in. So it still costs, but it's a much reduced cost and much more portability to get it into there. That's awesome. So um, I know that's something that, um, you know, the division is, is, the law student division is, is discussing actively this year. Uh, what are some future initiatives, things that are kind of interesting or exciting that, that law students could probably um, um, get, get excited or passionate about, um, issues that affect their lives or the, that are relevant to them that you've been hearing about in uh, that upper echelon circle that you, you work in? Sure. So there are two things I will mention. First is uh, in Washington, there is... Uh, now concept of the limited license legal technicians. Uh, and that's uh, a huge step forward for access to, to justice as long as it is in a limited scope. Could you explain what that is? Uh, sure. So, for example, in, in Washington, uh, I believe it's uh, family law that LLLTs, as they're called, are licensed to practice. Just limited very, license technician. Right. Okay. It's a very limited narrow... Limited license legal technician. Okay. Right. Triple LT. Triple LT. Triple LT. All right. Very good. It's, it's a very narrow law license, essentially, and it, you don't go through three years of law school. Uh, it's, it's a less uh, time commitment for the education, but then you also are limited in what you can practice. So that's a, a great thing for uh, giving more resources to those who have traditionally been overlooked by the justice system and by the resources of the legal profession. However, my caveat to that would be that we also have to make sure that we're not taking away law students' jobs either. Mm -hmm. We have to be uh, prepared to be very uh, regulatory with uh, 
these triple LTs in where they can practice and how they can practice so that we're not creating a whole new brand of lawyers that frankly are able to take the jobs of those who we have created the system of regulated law schools for. Hmm. Interesting. Right. All right. So triple LTs, that's something I've heard uh, some people compare that to like a, an equivalent of a nurse practitioner to a doctor. Uh, would, would that be a valid equivalent or, or is that kind of a clunky uh, analogy? You know, I, I think that's a, uh, a good analogy. However, you know, it's, it's much more complicated than that, too, because uh, you factor this limited license scope, uh, say, for example, in the medical profession, but you can then also take that to other states, for example. So this kind of, kind of merges the uniform bar exam and the triple LT concepts. You can take your nurse practitioner to go to other states. Some states you may have to take a new exam for it, or you may have to pass some kind of written uh, questionnaire or, or apply for it, but it's much more portable than your law licenses. So it's, mm. it's a, a blending over of these two issues. And also shorter education requirement. Yeah. And, and so also probably inherently lower cost is what you're saying exactly. for those people. Which is great for those that are going to it because as we all know, law school is way too expensive right now. Because right. it's also, a lower price tag for someone to hire that right. triple LT. Absolutely. But we also want to make sure that those who are going to law school through this regulated setup and are paying uh, way too much, frankly, for these three years of education and then bar prep, uh, we want to make sure that they have the job opportunities that we are, as a profession, saying are there or at least kind of there. Sure. And I know one of the concerns, sorry, as a Washingtonian, uh, one of the concerns that the legal practitioners have is that you're also creating this like subclass of limited legal practitioners, but they're now geographically bound. So you know, you get this flood and where are the jobs in family law for lawyers who are interested in the practice because these people do invest some time and money to get the license and to practice, but can only work in their field in the state of Washington because the licensing doesn't exist elsewhere. So, you know, what kind of problems could that raise for the ability of lawyers to practice in that area of family law in the state of Washington? So it's definitely a really hot topic. It's a hot topic. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's happening now. So it's great that we have Chris here in the law student division getting involved right at the beginning. Yeah. 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 Well, what's another hot topic that's come across your radar that you think might, might excite some law students? Sure. So the, the other thing that I think is a, a huge discussion for us to have uh, both within the law student division and within the ABA's Board of Governors is uh, reducing uh, costs and increasing access for law students to get into these SDF programs. That's something that... Wait, and explain, you mentioned that, what, what is SDF again? I'm sorry, so SDF is uh, Sections, Divisions, and Forums. So everything from... It, within uh, the ABA. Within, within the, the ABA. Okay. So everything from the Law Student Division to the Young Lawyers Division to the Criminal Justice Section to the Forum on Construction Law. It kind of spans the, the whole range of law practice areas. Uh, and so they all, all these various entities, these SDFs, have uh, conferences and CLEs and panels and programs, but oftentimes they are cost prohibitive for law students to get to. And so since we're going through a reimagining of how the ABA can serve law students and how the law student division can serve law students, we, both in the Board of Governors and in with, within the law student division board, are trying to look at ways to lower the cost for these programs so that a law student can uh, feasibly go to them. I'm not saying make them free, but make them uh, something that is much more reasonable for a law student to, to pay to go to it. Say, for example, I'm very interested in criminal law and would like to be a prosecutor. 
I would love to go to the criminal justice section conference. And I don't know, for example, what their specific conference costs are, but there are sections that are charging $300, $400, $500 and up to attend their programming, and they'll give a law student rate, which is $50 off of that. And $50 <laughs> off of $500 is still out of my price range. Yes. Right. So right. it's troubling, and, and it's something that we, uh, as we work toward a more unified ABA and a, a more intertwined ABA between our different sections, we need to make sure that we're looking out for law students to be able to, to get involved in these sections and because they are the, the future of these sections as well. So on that note, as the voice for the law students to the ABA BOG, if you are a law student and you have interest in something that's affecting you in your legal studies or that you foresee being problems you want addressed in your legal practice, I mean, what can law students do to get involved and to help support you and the division in advocating on those issues? Yeah, so I would say that the first thing is to reach out to the Law Student Division Board of Governors uh, any of us uh, are, are well-versed on these topics and, and very exposed to these topics. And it's important that we know what individual law students are concerned about. And so uh, if, if students reach out to us, we can bubble that concern up to the Board of Governors or the House of Delegates and see what the best solution is. You know, one, one thing that students seem to be reaching out a lot of, uh, about is student debt. And yeah. I'm sure you've been getting a lot of people approaching you um, throughout your tenure and your role. What are, what you are have some, your own student debt. Yeah, you have yours that, that, we all do. that's coming down the pipeline. What are some things that the ABA BOG might be addressing to resolve that issue, to, to lighten that load, uh, the pressure? It increases the need for that bar passage. It just adds so much more stress because you have to attack that so much more quickly. Yeah, absolutely. So the ABA, the greater ABA, has recognized that student debt is a, a huge problem right now. And one of the previous presidents of the ABA established a task force on financing legal education. And that task force just recently issued its report, which says essentially that we need greater debt counseling at law schools. And coming out of that report, the chair of that uh, task force, Dennis Archer, uh, has introduced a resolution which will be going through the ABA House of Delegates uh, and hopefully becoming ABA policy to encourage law schools to offer uh, debt counseling so that law students understand what taking on uh, fifty or $100,000 of student debt will do to their ability to buy a car or lease a, a house or uh, make some major uh, purchases that are necessary for adult life. But what about the people who already have the debt? They already have it. They missed the counseling opportunity. Uh, you know, sort of something that, uh, you know, a lot of law students are eyeing or opportunities to become assistant district attorneys Absolutely. or state's attorneys or public defenders or JAG officers or uh, entering some sort of public service through the public service loan forgiveness program. But that doesn't always seem to be on solid ground, um, uh, you know, through congressional budget cuts and, and, and reconsidering um, those, fi you know, financial needs of the, the the national level. Um, yeah. Is there something like that? or Yeah, so as you, as you largely touched on, uh, the public interest loan forgiveness is the, the program that uh, kind of exists currently for those law graduates who go to work in uh, the public sector, in DA's offices, in uh, public defender's offices, in nonprofits and local government, state government. Uh, after working for 10 years and paying off uh, your student debt, you have to make 120 on-time payments, but after you make those 120 on-time payments, your student debt is forgiven. The caveats to that are, A, you have to make those 120 on-time payments 
the nice thing with that is that uh, many law graduates are able to pay a fraction of what they earn. So it's it's still a high cost, but it's not exorbitant. And it's kind of capped and dependent on what you're making as a salary. But the uh, second caveat is, as you uh, touched on briefly, there are always cuts possible and pending to public interest loan forgiveness. Uh, in this last year's uh, presidential budget, uh, President Obama has introduced a, a cap of $57,500 for public interest loan forgiveness. So law graduates would only be able to get up to that amount uh, in their debt forgiven, and anything beyond that, they will still be on the hook for. You also, at the same time, have uh, limited ability to discharge your student debt through bankruptcy. It's largely not a reality that law graduates can discharge their debt through bankruptcy. So they're stuck with this debt, regardless of whether they get some of it forgiven, if there's this cap put in place, or whether they don't uh, work in the public sector and, and are on the line for all of it. Uh, so the law student division and the ABA are working hard towards uh, public interest loan forgiveness and maintaining that cap. Wow. Well, there's definitely a lot that uh, you guys are looking at uh, uh, the ABA Board of Governors, and we thank you for your advocacy and for being bold up there and standing uh, in the big leagues on our behalf. Absolutely. Uh, I bet it could be intimidating for some people, but we, we believe in you and we gra- we're grateful for what you're doing. Thank you. And, and the important thing to remember is that all the people on the Board of Governors were law students at one point, so you just kind of have to connect with them and get through to them. Well, thank you again for coming on. It was great Absolutely. to hear about your position and what you're doing for law students. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Well, it looks like we've reached the end of our program. I want to thank Chris Jennison, the representative to the ABA Board of Governors uh, for the Law Student Division, uh, for joining us today, for uh, making time to discuss some of the interesting and meaningful work that he does at that level. If our listeners have questions or wish to follow up with you, how can they reach you? Absolutely, and I encourage our listeners to do that. They can email me through the ABA Law Student Division email available on our website, or also tweet at the ABA Law Student Division uh, using the username at ABALSD. All right. Very good. This has been another edition of the ABA Law Student Podcast. I'm Fabiani Duarte. And I'm Madison Burke, signing off. Thank you for listening. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS, find us on Twitter and Facebook, or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. Remember, U.S. law students at ABA-accredited schools can join the ABA for free. Join now at AmericanBar.org forward slash law student. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.